Professor, before we get going, we need to know how to pronounce your last name. Okay. It's Kara and Georges. That's the easiest way to think of it, to break it down in that way. Kara Georges. Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Endurance Innovation. Uh, this week, our guest has been someone we've been trying to get on the show for quite some time after talking about his research uh, about six or eight months ago in our conversation about the role of music in exercise performance. And this is Professor Costas Georgis of the University of Brunel in London, where he is the Division Lead for Sport, Health, and Exercise Sciences. Uh, Professor Kara Georges is the author of uh, a couple of textbooks, uh, 12 chapters, and 100 peer-reviewed journal articles on the subject of the role of music in, uh, in exercise performance, as well as, I imagine, some other uh, psychological elements of, uh, of exercise. Professor, thank you very much for coming on the show. It's a great pleasure. Actually, interestingly, Brunel is not a place, it's a person. So it's not University of Brunel. Oh. It's Brunel University, named after the great Victorian engineer Brunel Isambard, uh, Isambard Kingdom Brunel. And what's his claim to fame? I'm, uh, I'm keen to be ed- uh, you know, well, educated. Well, he was a, a great shipbuilder. He built uh, railways, he built bridges. And our university started off as uh, an engineering based institution and so it was named in his honor. Uh, and it had a royal charter in 1966, I believe. So it's, yes, Brunel University, and now we add London as well, because uh, a lot of Brunel's work was in the West Country, and people thought the university was in the West of England, but it's actually uh, in West London. So there you go. (laughs) That was uh, an interesting little tidbit tidbit I wasn't expecting to pick up, but... uh... (laughs) It's it's amazing how involved British history tends to be. There's always something, some backstory to uh, to names. Oh, absolutely. Um, but you were right. For the most part, universities are named after the region that they're in. But uh, we're one of the exceptions. We're named after uh, a famous name in history. In fact, another tidbit: it it was deemed in uh, a poll a few years back that Isambard Kingdom Brunel was the second greatest Britain. Would you hazard a guess as to who the first was? When was the poll conducted, did you say? Yeah, it was about uh, maybe seven, eight years ago. Uh, William Shakespeare? Winston Churchill. Yeah, Churchill would have been, made my top, my top three. Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so it wasn't Boris Johnson on that list? <laughs> <laughs> Is that a little bit too close, too close to your home oh. right now? <laughs> All right, we'll keep politics out of this. <laughs> yeah, for the for the Probably record, speaking of, policy. <laughs> speaking of politics, though, we are recording this on January 20th, which uh, just so happens to be the very last day of uh, a certain president, which, you know, as much as we do keep politics out of it, I am it that is definitely making my day currently. But I'll leave I'll leave it at that. <laughs> so let's let's focus on the science here. Yeah, sorry professor, we totally got derailed. Um so uh tell us a little bit about your your research and uh, your history in the psychology of sport. Well, um actually I was born above uh, 
just a, a second-hand record store in uh, a rather poor but colourful enclave of South London. Um, and every morning, rather than being awoken by the sweet sound of birdsong or the sun breaking through the net curtains, there would be this thuddering subwoofer from, from the shop beneath that would literally oust me out of bed. And typically, I'd wipe my sleepy eyes and look out of the window. And I noticed that as people came within earshot of the music, their physiognomy, their facial expression would change. The, their face would brighten up. It would put a lilt in their stride. And that music functioned as an auditory backdrop to everything that took place in my neighborhood. So from a very young age, I, I was just fascinated by the influence of, um, of music on the human psyche. And, and concurrently, of course, Growing up in the uh, in the part of London that I did, you had to be a very good runner, or or you got shot. No, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so um, my uh, my athletic skills were picked up at school, and I was a little bit of a tortured soul with the music. I could never escape it, and I grew up playing various musical instruments. But much later in life, when I went to university, uh, unusually I was able to take a joint honours degree in sports sciences and music. Hmm. And it was there really that my formal investigation of uh, uh, the effects of music on athletes and on exercise participants commenced. Yeah, I love hearing how these formative experiences where it's something that you were exposed to as a child uh, really comes into play later in life when you have that opportunity to study it. It's surprising how often that comes up, um, but it's it's very interesting to hear. Well, I went back a few weeks ago because you know, I wanted to retrace the steps of my childhood. I go back to my old stomping ground. And unfortunately, that uh, shop was in a rather dilapidated state and, and boarded up. But I paused for a while and I could still hear the strains of Bob Marley and Desmond Decker resonating in my mind. It's uh, amazing how those earworms stick with us, isn't it? Absolutely. So then uh, your uh, your kind of uh, early childhood interest in this in this uh, commingling of uh, of music and uh, mood and you know physical expression, let's say, how did that uh, how did that progress through your academia? So um, when I got to the final year of my degree, I begged my lecturers to allow me to combine the two subject areas um, so that I could study the influence of uh, music on athletes. Um, and, and so that was, you know, an initial study that I did as an undergraduate. But then I went on to uh, read for a master's degree. And for that, I did what's called a meta-analysis. Mm -hmm. It was one of the first meta-analyses of the time. And essentially, a meta-analysis is a way to quantify the findings of a large body of work. And naturally, I chose all of the studies that had been conducted that looked at the relationship between music and athletic endeavor. And that in itself led to um, taking a doctorate. Um, I had two supervisors who were very eminent. Unfortunately, one of them is no longer with us but in their own ways were extremely interested um, in the psychological and physiological effects of music. One was a psychologist, Professor Peter Terry, and the other one was a, a physiologist, Professor Craig Sharp. Uh, an interesting backstory about Craig Sharp is that he's known as the founding father 
of sports science in the United Kingdom. Hmm. And he was also quite an adrap um, guitar player. I remember he used to tell stories of walking through London tube stations and he would hear a busker reciting a particular piece and uh, he'd stop and listen and he'd say to the busker, well, no, no, that's not quite right. And he'd take the guitar off them and play a few bars. <laughs> um, he was that sort of character, a real, a real Renaissance man. And um, he had uh, a huge influence on me, as did Peter Terry um, during my formative years uh, as an academic. But um, thereafter, I'd completed my doctorate. I'd, I'd got a place on the faculty at Brunel. And um, my research was picked up by Nike in the US, mm. uh, and they were keen on launching the world's first portable sport audio. So this was an ergonomically designed MP3 player. Okay. And they asked whether I could help them with the launch. And of course, that was a, a huge opportunity and uh, afforded me the chance to expound my research findings to date to the whole world, essentially. Um, and from then on, I had many opportunities to work with major international organizations such as Spotify, IMG. I worked with national governing bodies of sport uh, such as England Rugby. I got my own uh, research team up and running at the university. So, I mean, looking back, it's been 30 years since I first started working in this area and there have never been two days alike. Uh, and I've never tired of uh, looking for questions to answer and uh, and doing um, innovative new work and trying to to share that with whoever might be interested so that that's really a little bit of background into how I got into this area and what I've been doing and when you were working on your master's degree did you find there was a large body of research to support this or was this a fairly new area of study interestingly the body of work at that time we're talking early 80s, early 90s, was rather limited, much more limited than I anticipated. And researchers had taken rather a scattergun approach. There hadn't been a systematic means by which this area had been studied. There was a lack of accompanying theory. There was a lack of suitable measurement instruments. And really, I took that as a cue to try to develop the area as best I could. Now, last year in 2020, uh, I was involved in another meta-analysis. Um, my colleagues and I managed to publish it in a world-leading journal, Psychological Bulletin. Um, and we spent the best part of 10 years working on that, actually. And what was really interesting was just how this body of work had proliferated over the intervening 30-year period. Hmm. So now there are literally hundreds of studies addressing this area, whereas back then in the uh, early 90s, there were maybe 15 or 20 relevant studies. That's To me, that's just so incredible given that Everyone that I can think of, even before portable music was really something you could uh, easily take advantage of, but everyone has always tried to exercise with music going, whether it was lifting weights, whether it was running. Um, so it's been such a central player in in exercise. It's amazing that no one had studied it in detail before. 
Well, uh, you know, absolutely, it had been a central player. Um, I think there were two historical factors that really popularized music and physical activity. One, of course, was the advent of the Sony Walkman uh, in the late 70s. Um, and I recall that uh, very cleverly um, at the launch event in Tokyo, Sony marketed the Walkman by having a couple riding around the exhibition center uh, wearing the Walkman and having their ride powered by music. Um, and uh, around the same time, Hollywood A-lister Jane Fonda got into this whole concept of dance aerobics. And she realized that the baby boomers were getting the first signs of middle-aged spread, and she was determined to do something about it. So she found that this combination of music and physical activity packaged um, on uh, videos. <laughs> Initially, it was Betamax, <laughs> but then uh, VHS got onto Jane Fonda and encouraged her to change format. And actually, that was a huge impetus for the change from Betamax to VHS. Um, oh, no way. Okay. Absolutely. Uh, it's well documented historically. Huh. So some 18 million VHS videos later, <laughs> we realized that virtually every derivative of Fonda's original winning formula, be that step or aqua or zumba, um, we can trace its origins back to what uh, Fonda had done in popularizing this link between physical activity and music. So if you like, it's a, a meshing of advancements in technology, but also people's innate desire to be more physically active as societies have become industrialized and there's been less opportunity for people to be physically active in the workplace. Now that now that I I hear you talk about the history, that makes perfect sense. But it's it's something that you you know kind of being in it day in day out as a as a coach and engineer, it's it's not something that I've uh, I've really thought too too much about. Um, so it's it's always this is why I love doing this podcast, listeners, is that you you learn these these uh, little tidbits about the history and the way that things have come together uh, that you know, you kind of look past when you're, when your nose is right to the grindstone on a daily basis. So Professor Caragiorgis, just before we jump into your findings um, or the findings of your meta-analyses, uh, let's spend a little bit of time talking about the role of the, you know, the role of the mind uh, in uh, our perception of, uh, of endurance exercise and our ability to execute it well. Well, Michael, I'm glad that you've uh, asked me about that in particular. Um, because over the last five or six years within my research group, we have shifted from having done dozens of behavioral and observational type studies where you know, we played music to athletes and exercises involved in various activities uh, and monitored what it did for their performance mm -hmm. to taking more of, a, of an under the bonnet view, if you like. And what I mean by that is that Modern technologies have afforded us an opportunity to have a look into the brain to really understand what is happening neurophysiologically when we are involved in exercise activity and listening to music. Okay. So just to give you a very broad and, uh, and general overview, some of the main methodologies that we've been able to use 
have involved uh, electromyography, and that is a technique uh, that allows us to look at the electrical activity in the brain. Okay. There's another technique which is known as functional magnetic resonance imaging, or fMRI, and that enables us to, to peer quite deeply into the brain to uh, help us understand how the brain is using oxygen and to identify areas within the brain that are responsible for the processing of music. And latterly, we've also had access to another neuroimaging technique, which is known as functional near-infrared spectroscopy, or FNIRS for short. And interestingly, um, with this technique, the advantage that it offers uh, beyond the, um, uh, the insight that fMRI gives us is that we're able to engage in some movement with participants while looking into the brain. And FNIRS allows us to look at uh, oxygenation and deoxygenation curves in response to physical activity and music. So maybe just starting with that, with the um, FNIRS, it seems that the playing of music at a neurophysiological level allows us to extend the oxygenation curve within the brain. When we get this notion of deoxygenation, that's when participants report that they feel tired. They, they report high exertion. Mm -hmm. They report displeasure. So there's this shift, if you like, in the oxygenation curve, which might account for the slightly increased endurance that we uh, notice in observational studies when, for example, we run people to exhaustion at a standardized intensity on a treadmill. So this this is one of the possible uh, neurophysiological mechanisms. Now, switching our attention to the work that we've done with uh, EG, um, electroencephalography, it seems that at high exercise intensities, there is a down-regulation of theta brainwaves, which are associated with fatigue. And the other really interesting thing to emerge from our work is that when we examine how clusters of neurons fire during exercise, so uh, let's call that a, a neuropopulation. Normally, there's quite a regular pattern to these when we don't listen to music, but it seems that when music is playing, the frequency of these, the, the firing of neuropopulations is lessened. So the, the frequency is lessened, but there's an increase in amplitude. And we see that the um, mental efficiency with which we're able to function is somehow increased in the presence of music. And this might uh, relate to you know, this notion of being lost in music, being in flow, functioning autonomously. Hmm. It seems that uh, when we look at EEG data, music does facilitate that. Concurrently, as well as looking at um, how the brain is firing, we've also used uh, electromyography to examine how corresponding muscles are working. So for example, if we get somebody on an endurance type activity on a cyclogometer and use EEG electrodes to monitor what's going on in the brain, 
and concurrently we use EMG, electromyography electrodes to monitor what's going on in the muscle, we see that the firing, uh, the cerebral firing of those neuropopulations is associated with firing in the muscle. So it's not only the case that music is affecting what is happening in the afferent nervous system, the system that is sending messages from the working muscles to the central processor, mm -hmm. but it's also bearing influence on the efferent nervous system and those messages that are going from the central processor to the working muscles. So extending this whole idea of understanding the neurophysiological um, causes, the, the, the underlying mechanisms. Um, the EEG data have all also shown us, interestingly, that there's reduced brain connectivity in the presence of music. Specifically, specifically, the areas of the brain that are responsible for communicating fatigue seem to be deactivated to a degree in the presence of music and don't communicate with one another to the degree that they do when there's no music or when we use a control condition such as an audiobook. So sure. even between an audiobook, okay, which has an element of syntactic processing and music, there is a marked difference in brain connectivity. Now, I mentioned a little while ago about the notion of uh, functional magnetic resonance imaging. Now, um, in, in terms of peering deep into the brain and getting good spatial resolution, this is a wonderful technique for scientists. I'm sure you've had neuroscientists uh, among your guests in the past. But, but there's a huge limitation with uh, fMRI, and that is that when you collect data, it's imperative that you keep the participant's head completely still. Right. So if you're thinking, if you're thinking about endurance and um, exercise-related protocols, it's a real challenge to run these in a um, in a scanner. So we experimented with various methods, such as um, leg adduction, so bringing uh, the knees together, mm -hmm. and various grip rings. And eventually, we uh, came across this protocol of using a silicon grip ring that um, uh, participants um, pulled against. Um, and while we used this technique, they were able to keep their head completely still. And we were able to examine how music influenced the functioning of the brain while listening to music and while inducing fatigue using this handheld silicon grip ring. And what we found was that there is an area of the brain, technically it's known as the left inferior frontal gyrus. We also know that this area of the brain is integral to um, language perception. So this left inferior frontal gyrus is a nexus for sensory integration in the brain. And how do we know this? Well, activity in this deep-seated area of the brain, while our participants were listening to music, was also correlated with reductions in perceived exertion. Hmm. Now, 
we need a waiver here because clearly <laughs> this is a very limited action in a very controlled environment. Sure. And I can't tell you categorically whether it's generali- generalizable to the full gamut of endurance activity, but it does provide us with some initial and deeply exciting data that uh, informs how the brain is functioning in response to music. Now, I hope, gentlemen, with the advance of technology over the next 10 years, we will be able to use these techniques that allow us to look deep within the brain with activities that are more functional and more closely resemble what athletes do in endurance-type activities. But for the moment, we have this uh, initial vista, and it's really tantalizing, uh, and it's opened up a whole series of new research questions for the future. That's absolutely fascinating. Uh, yeah. The the initial image I had in my head when you were talking about this cognitive alignment uh, of the brain functions was basically a Viking boat where someone's beating a drum and everyone's rowing at the same cadence. <laughs> Uh, so that's kind of how I pictured it in my head. Um, but I'm wondering as well, from an evolutionary perspective, is there a reason that humans developed this? Maybe like, was it to do with hunting where people singing or chanting while they were hunting? And that was some, some area that you needed this extra endurance. Uh, and maybe there was a correlation there. Like that's pure speculation, but it just gets my mind thinking like, why would this happen? Or is it just a coincidence of evolution? Well, the world-renowned neuroscientist Daniel Levitin said that music as an art form is unique for its ubiquity and antiquity. And we can trace the use of music to the very earliest societies, whether music is used as a means of communication through a beating drum, whether it's used as a call to war and it's like soldiers up Mm -hmm. as they go into battle. Of course, the Spartans were very famous for their use of music, uh, a fearsome uh, operation they were in military terms. Um, Or indeed, whether music is integral to how human beings forge relationships. In many cultures, the word for music and dance is the same, for example, in the Maori culture. And we see that in terms of creating relationships between uh, humans and procreation, music and dance and movement and physical attraction. These things are absolutely germane to uh, our success as a a human race. So yes, all of this does go back to very early man and and we we can trace back all of these um, elements in anthropology. But I want to pick up on a theme that you uh, alluded to, which was this notion of the beating drum, you know, the notion of the the, the dragon boat mm-hmm. or music as a metronome. Because in my field, as well as examining how music in the background influences the human psyche and performance, we've also conducted many studies in which we have examined the notion of auditory motor synchronization. This is when the athlete consciously synchronizes their movement rate to the rhythmical qualities of a piece of music. Now, 
What is fascinating about this application of music is that in endurance type activities, there is, there is an increase in aerobic efficiency. And as a consequence, there is an ergogenic effect. So this effect is quite well documented and the enhancement is efficient in efficiency is in the realm of six to 7%. So oh, wow. yeah, it's not to be sniffed at. Mm-hmm. Um, perhaps an athlete who really brought this notion into the public consciousness was the celebrated Ethiopian distance runner, Haile Gabra Selassie. I remember years ago, I think it was February um, 1998. So what's that, 23 years? Yes. Gabra Selassie was at the Birmingham National Indoor Arena. That's Birmingham, England, not Birmingham, Alabama. <laughs> and he, he was intent on recording the, uh, the world best for the indoor 2000 meters. Now, he made rather an unusual request to the race organizers, which was that he wanted his favorite music, Scatman by Scatman John. You know the tune, guys? <laughs> yes, do, absolutely. Do, 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 do. He wanted that to be played during his record attempt. And I remember it was blaring over the PA and (laughs) Gabra Stolasti stormed off from the gun, leaving his competitors trailing in his wake. The Ethiopian contingent in the crowd was sent into a frenzy and he broke Eamon Coughlin's world best by some one and a half seconds. He was interviewed by a very famous UK publication, Athletics Weekly, immediately after the race. And when quizzed about the music, he said that the music fitted in with my world record pace. It wasn't a world record. It was a world best. But the principle held and he inspired many athletes and many exercise participants through his application of synchronous music, something that I witnessed again and again, even with Ethiopian rhythm sections in a venue. It didn't start with Gabra Selassie, though. Gabra Selassie's agent, Joss Hermans, who was a very famous Dutch middle distance runner back in the 70s, was the true innovator of music and endurance performance. And he actually recorded the world best for the uh, longest distance covered in one hour with a musical playlist. That was an audio-fueled endurance performance. And one of the uh, one of the first that we see when we look back historically at the influence of music on endurance performance that is fascinating and it's 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 so nice to have all of these you know real world you know top performance examples of uh of uh, the the theory and practice and it's interesting too that uh and this supports what you were saying earlier uh professor that people knew this, you know, kind of they, we had, we had a kind of an intrinsic understanding of this effect without necessarily the, the scientific body of evidence that you said there was a positive of when you, when you entered the field and you're, you're telling us now stories of, of folks in, you know, the, the eighties and the seventies using this to great effect, even before we, you know, we had a logical explanation and an understanding of it. That's right. It was known intuitively that music had an effect. When we look at it empirically, the effect is small, but it is reliable. And indeed, when I first started out in this area, there there was scant empirical evidence and the the body of evidence 
is growing. And that's thanks to a large number of uh, research teams now scattered around the world at the University of Ghent, at the University of British Columbia in Canada, at Springfield College in, uh, uh, in uh, Springfield, Massachusetts, and so on. There's some great work going on all over the world. That's awesome. So now that we, I think we have a, a reasonable foundation for um, mechanism of action and the the fact that it is, you know, as as you say, the evidence for for efficacy is small but reliable, which to me sounds great. Small but reliable. Mm-hmm. I would rather have uh, an ergogenic intervention be small and reliable than than potentially large but unreliable which is which seems to be the case for for some of the other things that we've tried there is one exception michael there is one exception please so we should caveat that by saying that for most of the variables that we look at such as uh, perceived exertion physiological variables performance variables the effect is small but if we look at the effect of music on affect or emotional state, the effect is a medium and it's reliable at that level. So hmm. yeah, if we're talking about mood regulation, then music is a particularly potent tool. And, you know, uh, we've this has kind of become a pet topic of conversation for us and probably all sorts of other folks who are living through this this world, um, you know, uh, uh, through, this, through this pandemic that is uh, in some ways you know, uniting the world because we're all living a fairly shared experience right now that, uh, that anything that has a positive effect on mood is something that we should all be adopting. Uh, and even from a, a training perspective, you know, motivation to train is uh, a limiting factor for, uh, I imagine athletes of all stripes, but certainly recreation. I doubt, I doubt that it is for your listeners. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, I can, I can speak for myself that I, I'm, I get, a, a, I get so much utility, both physical and psychological from endurance training, but it, you know, my motivation is certainly not a, a steady state. Uh, and I find it's, it's funny that, you know, this, this isn't something that I thought of before, before we were talking about this, but, um, if I, if I have a workout plan that I'm just not that keen on starting, uh, putting on music that I often associate with training actually helps tremendously with my motivation to 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 get going. And getting going is, you know, eighty percent of the battle in most uh, in most uh, recreational athlete workout uh, issues. So that is uh, that's something that you know, obviously, an anecdotal kind of uh, evidence. No, 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 it's not, not anecdotal. Uh, there's also a large body of evidence on the use of pre-task music. In fact, there's a Brazilian researcher called Bruno Smermel, who four years ago published a review on the use of pre-task music. Okay. Uh, and in a nutshell, um, what his review has said is um, that music can be used as a prime. It can be used as a stimulant or as a sedative. It can conjure the right sort of imagery that one needs to engage in physical activity. It can also feed exercises with uh, lyrical affirmations. Mm-hmm. Um, if you think of a tune like uh, Chariots of Fire by Vangelis, I'm sure you've seen the <laughs> eponymous yes. movie. Of course. Um, you listen to that music and it immediately conjures images of those historical Olympians striding across the sands of St. Andrews, striving for glory. And there's that pulsating beat in the background, like the, the beating of the human heart. So you can't help but be inspired 
when you listen to a piece of music like that, or maybe Gone a Fly Now by the Rocky Orchestra, or yeah. Eye of the Tiger by Survivor. You know, yeah. There are some, I'm using I'm using cliches now quite deliberately, but you know everybody can find a tune that is inspiring for them. Agreed. And this is a really good segue into uh, the next topic of conversation that I'd like to have with you is, and that is, uh, we'd like to hear some of your recommendations for specifically in the world of, of endurance training. But we, you, you mentioned some for uh, pre-exercise activation. But what about things like warm up, uh, cool down, and then uh, the the training itself, whether it's an easy session or a, a hard interval session. Uh, where, how would you select the mu- the appropriate music for those uh, cases? Yeah, so the first thing is that we need to remember, if we're going to apply music, we can use it pre-task in order to elicit the right sort of mental state for training or competition. Okay. We, we can use it in task, and there we can use it either asynchronously, which means to use it in the background, without any conscious effort to synchronize our movements with it. And we can use it synchronously, which means that there's a conscious effort to synchronize our movements with it. We can also use it post-task. So we can tap the recuperative effects effects of music. Latterly, we've published several studies that uh, speak to the psychological, psychobiological, and physiological benefits of using music to expedite or to speed up recovery. Mm. So it's not just in task and pre-task. There's also a growing scientific body of work that music can be used uh, to assist athletes' recovery. Now, in terms of the overall strategy for selecting music for performance, you need to think about how the music is going to contour your physiological state. And so when you want a relatively low level of psychomotor arousal, the the music will be relatively low in its arousal potential, in its arousal properties. And similarly, when you're right in the belly of your endurance workout, that is when you will want tracks with highly arousing qualities. So maybe a tempo of 135, 140 beats per minute. So as, as a guiding strategy, that's important. So you can you can think of the tempo rising, you know, holding for a while while you are maybe in steady state, mm-hmm. then descending for warm down, and then coming right back down uh, towards resting heart rate, so around 60 to 70 BPM for rest and recuperation. It can also go in peaks and troughs. If you think about the um, interval or parloof sessions that endurance athletes will typically engage in, you might want the music to have a motivational uh, apex and then to come down, to rise and fall in accord with desired heart rate. Um, Some of the studies that we've been doing recently have looked at interval type protocols And we found that actually using recuperative music during the recovery is extremely effective because it prevents your affective or emotional state from hitting rock bottom before you try to gather yourself for the next interval. Hmm. And allied to that, it's very difficult to process music at high exercise 
intensities. Yes. Because the afferent nervous system has limited bandwidth. And so when you're working beyond about 75% of aerobic capacity, it's difficult to process music, particularly lyrical music. And so getting athletes out there to think about using music in their recovery can actually yield manifold benefits. Wonderful. I have a few follow-up questions because I think you brought up a, 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 well, a whole slew of, of potential topics of conversation. Uh, the first is the quality of music that's the most important when you say, you know, uh, music that elicits recovery or something that elicits, uh, you know, a high, uh, high arousal. Are you talking about the tempo, the, specifically the, uh, the beat frequency of the music? Is that the key ingredient? So there are several elements that pertain to that. If we were only to, if we were only to mention tempo, um, which often is a good indicator of the arousal potential or the energizing quality of a piece of music, generally between about 120 and 140 BPM mm-hmm. will cover uh, most exercise intensities from low to high intensity. Our research, which has modeled the relationship between preference for musical tempo and exercise heart rate shows that we don't seem to derive additional benefit when the tempo goes beyond 140. So that's quite interesting. Okay. Historically, it was thought that the tempo should go up and up and up and up, but it's not a monotonic or a, a linear relationship. It seems to be a cubic relationship. It, it goes up and then it kind of levels off. So that's one thing to bear in mind, one scientific thing to to bear in mind. Got it. The other thing is that if we take an idiom of music such as rap, it tends to be recorded in a tempo range of 75 to 95 BPM. Now, of course, you would argue that, well, you know, that's that's a relatively slow tempo range. But when we analyze rap and look at its rhythmic qualities and its lyrical qualities, The rhythmic accentuation is such that it's often highly arousing, Mm -hmm. coupled with the machine gun style lyrics of of an Eminem or a Dr. Dre. It's actually highly arousing. So it's not only the tempo, it's the, um, the rhythmic accentuation, the use of lyrics, the instrumentation, the richness of the instrumentation. All of these things need to be taken into consideration. But for Joe and Josephine Public, (laughs) if you're only to look at one uh, quality of music, I think tempo is extremely important. Regularity of the beat is important, particularly if you're using the music synchronously. So if the music is highly syncopated, take Latin American music um, that has uh, a montuno or a clave, it might be very offbeat. often difficult for a a Western uh, listenership brought up on rock and pop to coordinate with the rhythmic complexities of something like salsa or samba. Of course, if you're from a a Latin culture, it's second nature. (laughs) But people should be thinking about these things, the the syncopation, the, uh, the rhythmic complexity. And of course, the music has the added benefit of containing lyrical affirmations. Think about what the lyrics are saying for you. Uh, Is it saying, uh, run to the beat, simply the best, ain't no mountain high enough, 
search for the hero inside yourself. There, there are so many affirmations um, in popular music. Right. So seek to take advantage of those. Then you get the benefit of the dissociation, the rhythmical cues, but also the uh, that that lyrical guidance and affirmation that you can uh, cling on to. So on the, the lyrical affirmation, you'd mentioned that above about 75% of your aerobic threshold, uh, it was difficult to process the lyrics. So is this uh, triggering memories or is it actually processing what's going on in the lyrics? Or how does, how does the brain actually interpret that uh, when you're doing a very high intensity exercise? That is a, a really excellent question. Um, what happens is that uh, when we exercise at a very high intensity, and as you mentioned, beyond anaerobic threshold. So when we switch from aerobic to anaerobic metabolism, and specifically our researchers pinpointed um, um, 75%, above 75% of aerobic capacity, okay? So we're approaching our maximal usage of uh, oxygen intracellularly. The, The problem is, that there is limited information processing capacity in the brain due to fatigue-related signals coming from the musculature and the working organs. This means that we have relatively little capacity to process the lyrical contents of music. That syntactic processing becomes very difficult beyond 75% of aerobic capacity. And so often it's advisable to use uh, rhythmical and instrumental music or rhythmical music with relatively few lyrics. You know, take the music of Tiesto or Jean-Michel Jarre Mm. might be ideal in that regard. But of course, uh, low to moderate intensities, it's perfectly okay to use lyrical music. Interestingly, allied to that, music seems to be able to reduce perceived exertion at low to moderate intensities of uh, exercise or training, but music does not reduce perceived exertion at high intensities beyond 75% of aerobic capacity. Interesting. But, but, and this is the really interesting but, although music doesn't influence what we feel at high intensities, it can influence how we feel it. It can help us in coloring how we interpret fatigue. It makes fatigue more pleasurable, more tolerable at those <laughs> high intensities. Oh, it's which fascinating. I think is really interesting. That, I'm, I'm thinking back as you as you provide these explanations, Professor, and in, in, back to my own experiences of uh, of you know doing high intensity interval training on the bike, which is sitting right behind me as we record, and I'm waiting for my ride this afternoon. Uh, and and it's you know a lot of these things that you say ring, really ring true to me, like the fact that if I'm doing efforts above the anaerobic threshold uh, for me, which is about. Pr- probably 75% of my maximal aerobic capacity. Yeah. So intervals in in that range, uh, certainly I lose, I lose my appreciation for the music. I know I almost no longer hear it. I I know that it's there, but I can't tune into it at all, but it does affect, it it still has some kind of, you know, it's heretofore intangible to me effect on my 
positive effect on my uh, on my experience of the of the interval. So it's it's fascinating to hear uh, the explanation for you know some of the mechanism of action of that. You know, music is sometimes contraindicated, Michael. You talk about your bike. If you're going to take your bike out on the road, I would <laughs> suggest you never listen to music on the road because music can be so intoxicating. It um, captures maybe 10, 12% of our attention, which means that critical cues that we need to um, process on the roads, such as uh, approaching vehicles or pedestrians, we can lose those cues if part of our attention is captured by music. Mm. And the other thing is that um, athletes don't think about very much is that if we're listening to high intensity music, say beyond 80 decibels. So if you can no longer hold a conversation with the person next to you while you're listening to music and concurrently you're working out at a high intensity, if we look at the workings of the inner ear, the blood around the follicles, which are the hair-like substances in the cochlea, the shell-like part of the inner ear, the blood there is flowing away from uh, the cochlea towards the working muscles and it leaves the follicles more susceptible to damage. So Uh I would urge your listeners to avoid listening to really high-intensity music and engaging in high-intensity exercise because long-term that can cause uh, damage to the ears, temporary hearing loss, tinnitus, and even deafness in extreme cases. How many friends do I have who were DJs or drummers or exercise instructors in the 80s? They never used any sort of ear protection. And they listen to very high intensity music, but now they're suffering as a consequence. Right. So just to be clear, this isn't, you know, high tempo music. This is high amplitude, high volume music. I'm talking about high uh, sound intensity, Intensity, nothing to do with the tempo. Right, right, right. Yeah. And of course, excellent advice, listeners, for, for outdoor use, especially when you're on your bike, even even running, but especially on your bike when you when your primary job is, you know, keeping the rubber side down, as the roadies say, uh, and, and not running into anything. Uh, and those of you who, who live and train, especially in major cities, this is, uh, this is an, an especially potent, uh, potent message to take away. I know some mm-hmm. of you who do ride with music, and that is not a safe thing to do. I agree with you. Our research says very clearly it's not safe. I I would also say if a lot of your listeners are routinely using music in their workouts, but they are also competitive athletes, I would not conduct every training session with music Mm, because, you know, like any uh, mild stimulant, if it's taken away in a competitive environment, that might have a detrimental effect on your performance in that competition. So I would suggest two sessions with music to one without and maybe single out really high intensity sessions for not using music because that will leave you in a good place psychologically for when you don't have the benefit of music in the hotbed of competition. This is excellent advice because, of course, in our primary sport here of triathlon, uh, that's probably most of our listeners are participants in triathlon. Of course, uh, music is uh, use of music is not allowed for very obvious and very good reasons in in competition. So uh, this is excellent advice and something that I, I recommend to the the folks that I work with, um, especially as. Uh, I'll just add on to what uh, Professor Kerry George just said, especially in any kind of race simulation sessions that that you may you may do close to uh, close to your event. 
performing those without the use of music is uh, is beneficial. So one thing that they can't control, though, is when you get a song stuck in your mind. And sometimes I wish there was an external control of that where I could turn it off. But uh, in, in my own experience, I've gone through Ironman races where it's just the same song repeating over and over again. And it's not even a song I like usually. It's just something that uh, happens to pop into my head about a third of the way through the race. And is there any research talking about uh, whether or not this is beneficial or harmful or how to avoid or how to influence this? There's a huge body of work uh, on this. Uh, much of the work on earworms has been uh, conducted at Goldsmiths University of London. Funnily enough, um, when I visited where I grew up a few weeks ago, the road in which I grew up was parallel to Electric Avenue, about <laughs> which uh, Eddie, Eddie Grant sang um, in 1982. And I couldn't get the earworm out of my head, which was, I'm going to lock down two Electric Avenue in lockdown two. <laughs> now it's um, going to be stuck in my head too. Thank you. It's going to be stuck in yours. Yeah. You know what? If if you don't want those um, those earworms, avoid listening uh, to that particular track <laughs> pre-competition, or use some other sort of imagery or cue that will detract from the earworm. Because you know, sometimes they they can be a little damaging and distracting. If you're going to use a, a, an earworm, though, try to find something that is uh, really advantageous to your performance. So when I was an athlete years ago, um, I used to use the track, um, I Feel Good, James Brown, because mm -hmm. that left me with a very uh, positive lyrical, lyrical affirmation that I was able to feed into my performance. Oh, that's clever because, you know, there, there's lots of a lot of evidence that positive self-talk is performance enhancing. So if you can get an earworm that is that that has that baked into it, like that James Brown track that you're almost, you know, killing two words in that one. Exactly. Exactly. Very clever. This is a very, you know, a as much as you can do a comprehensive discussion of this topic in, in an hour. Uh, I think you've ticked all of my boxes, Professor. Thank you very much for that. Andrew, do you have any follow-up questions? No, um, I don't really have any particular follow-up questions. Although one, as I was saying the sentence, one did pop into my head. Uh, negative impacts of music, like choosing the wrong music for a workout. Um, what would be, what should we be avoiding in that case? The, the great... Uh, Roman philosopher Lucretius said that one man's meat is another man's poison. And if we translate that into modern day parlance, one person's music can be another person's noise. And so music that can be really uh, effective uh, and drive one individual to their optimal state can be very damaging for another. So you know, the, the sharing of music doesn't always work mm -hmm. because we have different musical predilections, different social cultural um, backgrounds, um, uh, and those influence have a strong bearing on the sort of music that we like. So I think that it's important in a group atmosphere in particular, if you're working out with others, that there is some sort of democratization in the music selection. Otherwise, it's very easy for this to go terribly wrong uh, and to disaffect to disaffect um, members of the group i've worked with many teams through the years and you can think of a really multicultural team such as let's say uh, chelsea fc right here in west london mm -hmm. now, they might have 11 players 
but they're all from different cultures. And so finding a piece of music that will work for all of them is a very difficult thing to do. But if you're working with a Brazilian football team and they have a common heritage and you use the music of Sergio Mendes, then they are very much up for it. So cultural homogeneity is important if you're looking to select music for a group. I would add that I have written a book about all of this. It's called Applying Music in Exercise and Sport. Okay. And just as it, sa- just as it says in the title, if any of your readers would like to learn more about the application in an individual and a group context across exercise and sport, it's um, 100,000 words, nine chapters with a lot of playlists. You've got the scientific detail and uh, everything explained at great length with sections on different sports. Um, Have a read of the book, dig it out of your local library, uh, and I hope that uh, your readers enjoy reading it as much as I enjoyed writing it. Uh, And that's through Human Kinetics, right, Professor? It's published by Human Kinetics, yes, indeed. Excellent. I was actually, you mentioned mentioned the word, I was, uh, I had had this in in the bottom of my notes, I just didn't scroll down far enough. I I wanted uh, a playlist recommendation from you, given your your depth of knowledge. And admittedly, you know, as as you've said, there's quite a bit of variation, uh, cultural and uh, and thematic. But uh, if there are any any playlists that you could recommend for for our listeners to try, I think that would be a fun thing to add. Yeah, sure. We just published a playlist um, last weekend, uh, which is freely accessible to all of your listeners. Okay. If you go to the website of The Conversation UK, which is quite a well-known publication uh, over here in in the UK, there's an article about the application of classical music in exercise. Okay. You can find out a lot about that. It's quite an interesting subfield in itself. And at the end of that, there's a playlist and you can click into uh, Spotify, into my group's Spotify account. Okay. Um, so you can use that classical playlist, but also there are many other playlists in there, in our account. You can follow us and uh, periodically, generally every couple of weeks, we post new playlists in there um, and you're very welcome to try those out and let us know how you get on. Absolutely. I will 100% do that for, like I said, for my afternoon workout. Wonderful. Well, this has been just an incredible conversation. It took a lot of turns I wasn't expecting, um, starting off with the history lesson, but, uh, but also looking. <laughs> I'm glad. At, I'm glad I messed up the uh, the university name, right? It's, it's serendipitous. <laughs> it was yeah. It was a happy happy mistake. Uh, but no, it's been a very interesting conversation, and even touching on other topics that uh, I wanted to ask questions about, but I think it would just get us too much into a rabbit hole. Like the one thing that came up about uh, rate of perceived exertion with limited oxygenation in the the brain. Um, that's something I would like to dig into more, but uh, just so many fascinating topics. And it was a very illuminating conversation for me. And it's just amazing what kind of role music has in, in exercise ability. Exactly. It's small. It's effective and reliable as long as we keep things in perspective. So I'm obviously very interested in in sport, and uh, my musical ability is virtually non-existent. But my uh, my partner's family are all music teachers, and uh, her her uh, stepfather is actually quite an accomplished uh, jazz saxophone player and so they're very so whenever i talk to them i i'm very curious in musical theory even though i'm no natural talent for it so we always have these conversations about music and so uh, i'm uh i'm going to recommend that they listen to this conversation uh, 
since they would have very little interest in any of these other conversations that we typically have on our podcast, I think this one would be something that they would find enjoyable to listen to. You know, Michael, what is really interesting for them is that uh, we find that people with a strong musical background tend to prefer more complex music in the realm hmm. of exercise than those who don't have a musical background. Interesting. Who tend to prefer simpler forms, uh, a constant rhythm. Think yes. of uh, bubblegum bubble pop, for example. So the, the more advanced you are on your musical journey, then the more complex forms of music will float your boat in the exercise domain. That is fascinating uh, because my, again, my, my musical ability, as I said, is, is very, very limited. And I do prefer very simple music when I train. Stick, stick to the app then, Michael. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we'll do. We'll do. <laughs> Good advice. And from my own experience, um, a lot of the music I listen to on my own is uh, progressive rock and things like that with uh, varying tempos and quite complex arrangements. But I, I have not even attempted to exercise to that because it seems counterproductive, but uh, it is it is very interesting how how that would have such a different effect. Do you know what, Andrew? It's interesting, but we find that um, for progressive rock, for some more complex forms of rock with uh, uh, flowery guitar solos, it, it tends to attract introverts. Are you an introverted character? Would you say? I I can be. Yes. Uh -huh. Yeah. Uh -huh. This, this podcast is probably the most extroverted thing I've done. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> oh, that's very interesting. What a truly fascinating conversation. Thank you again, uh, Professor Kara Georges, for your time. And uh, if our listeners want to uh, learn more about you, follow you, uh, read your papers, uh, find your books, I know you mentioned one, uh, one book that we will absolutely link to in our show notes. Is there anything else that uh, folks should know? Your listeners can follow me um, using at Savvy Brunel, uh, which is my Twitter account. And on there, you'll find daily items that relate to this area. So uh, yeah, follow me there and uh, you can engage with me daily. For listeners, I'll put that Twitter handle in our show notes as well. So thank you very much, as always, for tuning in, everyone. And uh, thank you, Professor Kara Georges, for, for your time. Uh, those of you who have enjoyed the show, uh, our, our common call-out at the end of these is to uh, leave a rating and a review on uh, Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you get your podcasts. Uh, we've, been, we've been doing really well with, uh, with your support, listeners. That we've, We're getting some really nice, um, some great reviews and, uh, and a, a few more five-star ratings. So please do keep those coming. Michael and Andrew, thank you and happy listening. Mm -hmm.